This is KJZZ, your news and information station in Phoenix and across Arizona. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. It's the podcast designed to catch you up on some highlights from around the region. Thanks for listening for the week of February 12th, 2024. Fans of major artists like Taylor Swift and Beyonce have had to deal with surging ticket prices for popular tours in recent years. Some blame bots for flooding ticket sales sites, buying up tickets and creating bidding wars on the resale market. Wayne Shutsky reports state lawmakers are trying to address the problem. Ahead of Taylor Swift's Eras Tour launch, Lisa Abelar marked her calendar to make sure she could snag tickets for her two daughters, who she described as hardcore Swifties. I remember feeling really frustrated, thinking, what are you talking about? There must be a glitch or there must be something wrong. Abelar never even got a chance to see what tickets were available because Ticketmaster's website experienced now infamous crashes that booted thousands of fans from the website. So Abelar says she went to the secondhand ticket market, but... There was no possible way that I could ever justify paying um, anything close to what they were going for at that time. Eras Tour ticket prices originally averaged around $250 each, but fetched an average of nearly $2,200 on the resale market. Fans across the nation faced similar problems. The debacle resulted in congressional hearings where Ticketmaster faced accusations that its dominance in the market and a lack of competition is to blame. Joe Berktold, with Ticketmaster-affiliated Live Nation, said the company took responsibility for the problems on its website. But the secondhand market was also to blame. We also need to recognize how industrial scalpers using bots and cyber attacks to unfairly gain tickets has contributed to this awful experience. Republican State Representative David Cook is pushing for a pair of bills to try and remedy the situation. One would ban bots from jumping the line on websites like Ticketmaster. The other would impose new rules on the resale market. Congress in Washington, D.C. likes to talk about things like they're actually doing something, but they don't. So Arizona is going to step up and protect consumers today. In 2016, Congress passed a law restricting the use of bots to purchase concert tickets. But venue owners say it's not effective. Stephen Chilton owns the Rebel Lounge in Phoenix. The Bots Act has done nothing uh, because there's no enforcement mechanism. And the problems don't only affect high-profile artists like Swift. Chilton says speculators target smaller shows too, preying on consumers who might even think they're buying from the venue. On a non-demand show, say a local show at Rebel Lounge, The scalpers just list every one of those shows at crazy prices, $90 for a $15 ticket. And he alleges in some cases, those speculators don't even own those tickets when they list them. That can result in ticket sales being canceled at the last minute because the reseller didn't secure the ticket they had already sold. Cook, the bill's sponsor, says that's what he's trying to stop. If you own something, then you want to sell it, that's fine. But you're selling property that you don't own or you don't possess, and then the fees are just astronomical. Third-party ticketing sites like StubHub and Vivid Seats say they support bans on misleading speculative ticket sales. But Kelsey Lundy, a lobbyist for Vivid, says any new law targeting bots should require primary ticket sellers like Ticketmaster to report when bots flood their sites. But the reason that we haven't seen very many um, investigations, very many um, prosecutions, is because these breaches are not necessarily reported. But Howard Waltzman, an attorney for Live Nation, says that's easier said than done. That's an IP address that's bouncing around from Bulgaria to the Philippines to wherever else. You, You can't identify who's using those bots, let alone who is paying for those bots to be used so they can sell tickets. Governor Katie Hobbs says she's still reviewing the bill. I will support things that make make 
things more affordable for Arizonans. And if this is a way to do that, then yeah. Before it can reach Hobbs' desk, the legislation must make it through the Arizona State House. If that happens, Cook says he is going to invite Taylor Swift to the bill signing. That's a plan Hobbs says she can get behind. Wayne Shutsky, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news. This next story may be concerning because almost each of us will either be a caregiver or need care. And care is costly. For those middle-income earners, it could mean relying on adult children or impoverishing themselves to qualify for a program like Medicaid. Kathy Ritchie has details. And we're going to do your high blood pressure meds first. Meet Lori Struna. She's not a nurse or a trained caregiver. I remember you're going to swallow them. She's 81-year-old Barbara Struna's okay. only daughter. Excellent. Barbara has Alzheimer's disease. Okay, now we're going to take the stuff for your knee. Lori hands her mom naproxen. Okay. As Barbara takes a sip of water, she keeps an eye on her favorite soap opera, The Young and the Restless. You're done. You mm. did it. Good job. Lori is 56 and works full time. She's also one of millions of unpaid family caregivers who is caring for a loved one at home. A lot of people are familiar, for example, with movie stars like Bruce Willis and different people like that and what he's going through. But when you, you are a middle class person, there's very little help and very little resources for you. The crux of this and likely every other caregiving story is the enormous cost of providing quality care either at home or in a long-term care facility. There's no way to prepare yourself you know, you're a middle-class person, you're living paycheck to paycheck and trying to save money for your own retirement. You're looking at, do I have to sell my house to care for my parent? Throw in the emotional toll. On a daily basis, you, you're not quite sure today this works, tomorrow that doesn't work. You're having to have to zig and zag. Every day is like Groundhog's Day. Though life is getting a little easier. Struna's mother now qualifies for 24 hours a week of in-home care from Altex, which stands for Arizona's Long-Term Care System. Altex provides services to Arizonans who either have a developmental disability or are elderly or physically disabled. But getting on Altex is tough. On average, only 22% of all Altex applications are approved, according to a spokesperson. So we denied Altex coverage August 1st, 2023 and ongoing. We took this action because you are not medically eligible. That's Lori reading a letter she received from Altex last fall. Barbara qualified financially, but failed to qualify medically. That decision was later reversed. I think one of the problems is that when Altex does their assessments, they do it over the phone. Prior to the pandemic, those pre-admission screenings were required to be done face-to-face. -face. Now, most are done over the phone. Dina Norwood is a managing attorney at Community Legal Services, a nonprofit law firm that, among other things, helps families appeal an Altex denial. Right. It was so important for them to see your living space to know what you're dealing with um, as far as accessibility, as far as your caregivers, as far as the kind of help you need to see it firsthand. Norwood says a common denominator between her clients and what happened to Lori Struna's mom is the phone assessment. We've had a number of clients or their caregivers say that the assessor spent five or ten minutes on the phone phone interview. And she says a lot of her clients clearly need help and should be eligible for Altex. In the coming years, even more middle-income Arizonans will likely become acquainted with Altex. We know that upwards of 70 percent of the older population will at some point in their lives need paid long-term services and supports. 
That's Katie Smith Sloan. She's the president and CEO of Leading Age in Washington, D.C. Leading Age is a national association representing nonprofit long term care providers across the U.S., including Arizona. And she's very clear about this essential aspect of health care. Well, care costs money, you know, full stop. Yet most Americans don't earn what long term care costs in a year. You know, a private room in a nursing home can cost upwards of $100,000 a year. Uh, assisted living is anywhere from fifty to $75,000 a year. And Medicare doesn't pay any of it, leaving roughly 11 million middle-income older adults to pay out-of-pocket or impoverish themselves to qualify for Medicaid programs like Altex. It's one reason why Smith Sloan wrote a letter to Congress last December calling on members to help create a comprehensive and equitable long-term care financing system. I think the issue is really one of political will and the lack thereof of really pushing forward a concrete proposal. Right now, there's no real champion in Congress for this. And um, right now, I think there's no appetite for putting forward something that is going to be so costly. Yet for those without ample wealth or family to rely on and no federal long-term care insurance, it's unclear who, if anybody, will take care of them when the time comes. Kathy Ritchie, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. The annual KJZZ Haiku Writing Contest is underway. A haiku is a short poem often made up of 17 syllables and three lines. Submit your haiku that answers what's in store for 24, and we'll read some of them on air. Visit haiku.kjzz.org for details. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation, Pack rats are pests, particularly for car owners in and around the valley. Yet this species is highly sought after among Apaches in the wintertime and is even an essential ingredient for their traditional diet. Gabriel Pietrazio recently set out with a pack rat hunting party to understand the cultural and nutritional value of this rodent. And a warning for our listeners, this report includes graphic descriptions of an animal death. Yeah, it sounds like a big bird, but That's Kim Adams teaching me what they're called in the Apache language, which translates to big nest builders. Before trekking any further into the San Carlos Apache Reservation, 20 miles east of Globe, we picked out a couple of thin evergreen branches from a pile outside his trailer home in the Gilson Wash District. A lifelong pack rat hunter, Adams says you always need to be prepared, in case any elders show up without warning. So pick you up and then make sure you know you're on your way to go look for the appetizers. On an overcast day in late January, San Carlos Apache forager Twyla Casador drives us in her black pickup truck to the foothills of the Natural Corral, a mesa once favored for cattle herding. Now it's a popular destination for pack rat hunting. It's an arid landscape speckled with cacti and agave, but Casador and her crew are in search of what's burrowing below the surface. We'll go that one. This one's too small. You never know, man. Go ahead. They're looking to break apart pack rat nests protruding from the ground and the tiny elaborate tunnels dug underneath root systems providing the rodents protection from predators, even Apaches like teenager William Hopper. Homie just built his mansion. Pack rat mansion, <laughs> made from heaps of decaying leaves and feces. 
Casador says disturbing their homes actually helps aerate the soil and nourish the plants around it. So you're not exactly destroying it because it is in its natural habitat and they always remodel. While Casador oversees two boys taking turns demolishing another nest, Adams watches out for any furry critters trying to scurry away. Armed with a rock in his hand, almost the size of his fist. Hit him right in the head, knock him out. <laughs> On the lookout, he's hungry too. So I had to ask them what this Apache delicacy tastes like. Many say chicken. But it depends who you ask. Nothing compared to it. Yeah, it has its it own has unique a, taste. Casador is part of the traditional Western Apache Diet Project, an Indian Health Service initiative in partnership with the San Carlos, Tonto, and White Mountain Apache tribes, as well as the Yavapai Apache Nation. She's documented some 300 ancient meals of the past and helped develop nearly 100 daily menus, both high in fiber and protein. Traditional Apache diets are tied to the seasons. The project estimates that wild meat made up between 20 and 40 percent of the Apache's total pre-reservation diet. Rodents were the most eaten mammal by volume among 30 species, and her favorite way to prepare pack rat is by boiling it whole, fur and all, for about 10 hours. You'll watch it explode, all the intestines and everything comes out. You're left with this beautiful piece of meat. Before adding an agave sumac glaze and grilling it to a crunchy crisp, Pack rats are foraged typically between December and February, a short season to safely hunt the species without worrying over rattlesnakes or bot flies. That's why you don't do it in the summertime. But that brief two-month window has narrowed. Rising temperatures and warmer winters are the basic ingredients to a bad recipe for pack rat hunters on the reservation. See moving? We kept on home wrecking with a few false alarms along the way. I'll run away from you. A couple dozen nests later. Oh, there he is, there he is. He's right, right there. there. Right there, right there. Right there. Here. Oh. A gray pack rat suddenly appeared and scampered off to a nearby nest. He's right there. Keep digging, Paul, keep digging. Oh yeah, you got him, huh? Got him? Nope, keep digging, there. keep digging. He's right there, just keep digging. Take this up, lift this up. Where is he? On the bottom? Yeah, he's like right here. He's like right here. Yeah, I got okay, him. Okay, let him come out. Oh, uh, he's pinned down. By a branch of evergreen, no more than three feet in length, Casador instructs one of the teenagers to take that stick and... Hit his head really hard with a cue ball. Ooh. Yeah, go ahead and hit it harder again. He's huge! There he is! He's a one-pounder. For KJZZ News, I'm Gabriel Piaterrazio reporting from the San Carlos Apache Reservation. In politics news, an effort to require the approval of Congress or the state legislature to deploy the National Guard is sweeping the nation. But as Cameron Sanchez reports, the attempt hit a wall in Arizona. The Arizona National Guard can be deployed by the president, but Republicans introduced a bill that would require the approval of Congress or the state legislature to send them to war. National Guard General John Connolly criticized the plan, saying the state has no authority to stop the president's deployment. The notion that by passing this bill, the governor is somehow going to be able to stop or the legislature is going to be able to stop the Arizona National Guard from deploying is frankly nonsense. Unless she runs out onto the tarmac and throws herself in front of a KC-135, she has no ability to stop the National Guard. The bill was voted down in its first committee hearing with bipartisan opposition, but it can still be revived. More than half of the 50 states have a version of this bill in their legislatures this year. Cameron Sanchez, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast.
It's been a busy week and you may need a little distraction. Try KJZZ's Play. We just launched a puzzle page. It's got a daily and weekly puzzle. You can share it with family, friends, and colleagues. But don't do what I did and share it with your boss. She's so competitive. Give it a go at play.kjzz.org. In education news. The Senate Education Committee has killed a bill intended to create more transparency among private schools for parents of students with disabilities. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd has details. Senate Bill 1354 would have required a school taking ESA dollars to disclose the disability services it offers before a parent enrolls their child and provide a refund if the student's needs weren't met. Democratic Senator Christine Marsh is the bill's sponsor. She says if the student had an existing IEP or 504 plan from a public school, the new one would have to honor it. However, if uh, they can't and the parent still would like to put their child in that school, They just need to sign a waiver in order to still attend that private school. Republicans on the committee were concerned the measure would create unnecessary red tape and put a regulatory burden on schools already providing those services. The bill failed on a party-line vote. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Fronteras News. PFAS are a group of widely used, human-made chemicals that have been linked to health issues like cancer. Now the Department of Defense is greenlighting investigations into sites that have been exposed to contamination. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick has more. The DOD designation is meant to streamline and fast-track contamination investigations at the sites listed, including the Tucson area's Davis-Monthan Air Force Base and Morris Air National Guard facility. For years, both facilities used a special firefighting foam that contains PFAS. John Kamik with Tucson Water says the chemicals have leached into the groundwater. As we've been outlining to the Department of Defense uh, in particular, Uh, us in the state of Arizona, is the faster that you recognize that this is an issue that is emanating from these facilities, the faster you can start to clean it up. Water officials closed more than two dozen wells around Tucson a few years ago after finding PFAS. Kamik says the longer mitigation plans are put off, the more water contamination could occur. Alicia Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And finally, from KJZZ's The Show, co-host Mark Brody talks with a professor who is using a new tool to find missing U.S. soldiers from the Vietnam War. ASU archaeologists are working with the federal government to try to find the remains of U.S. service members still unaccounted for from the Vietnam War. And the scientists and the Defense POW-MIA Accountability Agency, or DPAA, are using a relatively new method to try to find remains in Cambodia. Christopher Nicholson is an associate research professor in ASU School of Human Evolution and Social Change. He's also the executive director of the Center for Digital Antiquity there. He joins me. And Christopher, how did it come to be that you're doing the work you're doing in Cambodia? Sure. A couple of years ago, about two years ago, we were approached by the DPAA and their innovations program to do some type of project related to digital archaeology and thinking about how information that they derive from past projects can maybe be used in a new and innovative way. And and thinking about how those hard copy documents that they produced from early projects can be turned into some type of digital product that can help them in their mission of trying to find missing service personnel. When you talk about the concept of digital archaeology, what exactly are you talking about? Yeah, this is becoming um, more and more, I guess, popular within archaeology. 
thinking about how the information that's derived from the archaeological record, and that can be anything from information derived thousands of years ago up to maybe 50 years ago, is born digital. That is, the, the information that we get in the field has uh, been produced by some type of computational machine. Uh, and then suddenly we have data and all sorts of other information that we can use to tell us something more about past human behavior. So now with digital archaeology, it's everything from the creation of digital information in the field to the actual curation of digital information that can be used later in time for some other type of project. Hmm. So how are you trying to use that to find remains of American service members uh, who, who are serving mostly, it sounds like, uh, who were involved in, in uh, aviation accidents during the Vietnam War? Yeah, so when we started the project, we weren't really sure what we were going to do. Um, you know, uh, GIS models are becoming more and more also popular in archaeology, GIS being geographic information science uh, models. That is the science of where things are. And so we came up with this idea, if we could use the location of existing DPAA sites where they've actually gone on the ground and looked for missing service personnel, if we could use that known information with some other known environmental data to try to maybe predict or come up with a probability map of where they might find these sites in the future. Uh, that way, when they're doing their planning activities, they can look at a map and say, based on these environmental parameters, we have a, there's a good probability that we will locate uh, missing service personnel material uh, down the line. So what kind of other factors are you looking at? We looked at um, environmental variables such as elevation, slope, axe aspect, uh, the curvature of the earth uh, or the landform, uh, the distance to rivers, and a vulnerability index that we created. And what is that? It's sort of looking at the susceptibility of different vegetation on the landscape to maybe decay. So we can use things like environmental variables like climate, uh, precipitation, and temperature to, to sort of look at the susceptibility of the land to, to different impacts. So does all of this mean then that you are trying to create, it sounds like, more favorable conditions for other people to go into the field, to sort of know where to go into the field to maybe look for remains, as opposed to going in the field and like looking at, you know, looking at whether there's particular vegetation at this spot versus that spot and saying, okay, this, this might be the place? Yeah, this is actually a really good planning tool because in a lot of cases, there's anecdotal information that the DPAA historians may have about a crash location. And so they'll begin to research some different information about it. This type of model can maybe help them to say, okay, well, yes, this is an area where there is high probability for, uh, for us to locate these types of remains. And so it's a good idea to continue down the line uh, with doing research to see if we can actually, if one of these missions will be successful. I'm curious, like at what like at what point will you be able to say this is working or this is not working? Like what's the what's the timeline in terms of maybe trying to actually locate remains? Yeah, so this is a brand new model for us. We just actually completed this in late 2023. So now what we want to do is actually ground truth the model. So as the DPAA continues with projects in Cambodia and across Southeast Asia, we'd like to be able to use this model as part of their planning process. And then once they do locate an area to sort of plug that location into our model and actually determine if it is of high prob probability or not. 
and then actually see if it's there or not. Yeah. I'm wondering if this kind of modeling might have applications beyond what you're using it for right now, even maybe beyond trying to locate, you know, remains of service members in other parts of the world. Oh, yeah. We think that this is actually applicable uh, to any part of the world, right? Coming up with different environmental parameters or, or other GIS and spatial information that might inform us about the land itself. Because, you know, typically when we do these types of models, they're typically called predictive models in archaeology, where you have some type of human behavior that you're trying to understand from a, a spatial perspective. And so usually our predictive models like this attempt to recreate that behavior. But in this case, we're trying to examine a random behavior that is airplane crashes, right? And so we have to think about other types of information that might be useful in the recovery of a missing service mm. personnel, not necessarily why the aircraft got to be where it is at a particular point. So things maybe like soil acidity, or maybe things like the size of the aircraft or the amount of munitions on the aircraft can tell us something about the success rate of actually finding missing service personnel. So these models really can be used for all sorts of different things if we can find the data and information that might give us some insight as to why you find something in one place but not in another. Sure. So I want to go back to talking a little bit about what you reference as digital archaeology. And I'm curious, especially because I think for a lot of folks, when they think about archaeology, they're thinking about like ancient Greece, ancient Rome, things that are really, really old, not things that, you know, not times in life that a lot of people who are still alive actually lived through, like the Vietnam War. Yeah. So, you know, Exactly. When a lot of people think of archaeology, they think of, you know, the distant past. And I think you've got some great examples of there. But now uh, there's even a newer segment of archaeology called historical archaeology that begins to look over maybe the past 100 or 200 years where we do have written records of information. But we also have a lot of remains left from those activities. And in, in places like, you know, back east in places like Virginia, if you think of places like um Monticello, where Thomas Jefferson's home is, right? They do all sorts of excavations there, looking at the way he lived, um, the different slave quarters, uh, enslaved people where they lived and worked on a daily basis. And so even within that historic period, we can begin to learn a little bit more about the daily lives of people. All right. That is Christopher Nicholson, Associate Research Professor and Executive Director of the Center for Digital Antiquity in ASU School of Human Evolution and Social Change. Christopher, thank you so much for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian. This is KJZZ, your news and information station.